Well, good morning. How's everyone this morning? Are we awake? Last night was a little bit of a later night. Hopefully we can uh, be able to be alert and attentive in class and in chapel here this morning. I never knew there was so much spit that came off the end of trombones when they were playing, actually. I had never noticed that before. Um, there's kind of a semicircle up here, but uh, I'll maybe, maybe I'll stay still today. <laughs> that was a blessing. Mark chapter 11 this morning. <laughs> oh, my. Things you never, never notice until you're sitting in certain places. Mark chapter 11, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 12 here this morning. And it says, And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he, speaking of Jesus, was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Jesus is now one, less than one week away from his crucifixion, and uh, he knows what's coming, but no one else does. And just the day before, he had ridden in on this uh, same road into Jerusalem, being praised by the multitude as the promised king, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, he then spent the night uh, at the house of his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who, of course, he had just recently raised from the dead. I'm sure every day was exciting in that house, um, in that situation. And uh, they lived in a place called Bethany, which is about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem. And I've never been there, but it's in the foothills of the, of, um, the Mount of Olives, as far as I understand. And so Jesus was traveling from really kind of the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives over to the Temple Mount. And so Jerusalem there is built uh, on a, a mountain. Again, depending what part of, your, of the country you're from, you know, you may not call it a mountain, but it's a mountain uh, nonetheless what they call it there. And that's here where this will be called the cursing of the fig tree happens there. And Jesus comes to the situation and comes to a tree. He sees it has leaves on it. And my understanding is that if a fig tree has leaves, that means it should have fruit. And so he went expecting there to be fruit on this tree, and there was none. Uh, the tree was giving a false impression of being fruitful. And so it had, it literally says, nothing but leaves, not any fruit on it. And Jesus, not, I think, because he was mad that there wasn't any fruit there and he was hungry, but he saw an opportunity to teach a lesson. And so he curses this fig tree and says, no fruit's going grow to on, grow on you from this point on. And, uh, and it didn't. And so the next morning, they're traveling the same route again to Jerusalem. And notice what happens in verse number 20. It says, And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance what had happened the day before, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And... Uh, I don't know if Peter was surprised or if he was, you know, just thinking, wow, there's something impossible just happened. And one day a tree went from having these leaves and, you know, looking like it's fruitful to now just totally being withered away to nothing. And certainly it was an impossible thing that took place uh, there based on what Jesus had said. And Jesus uses that opportunity to give his disciples and us a really a, 
an incredible promise here in verses 22 through 26. Verse 22 says, And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that, what's, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he hath said shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them. We'll stop right there for now. Whoever will say to this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. That's a pretty amazing promise. Pretty amazing promise. I think of mountains, the first thing that comes to my mind is my trip to the Canadian Rockies in 2011. How many of you have been to the Canadian Rockies? I know the Essayenkos, only a few of you. Uh, yeah, Annalise was on that trip, too, and um, wow, I love the Canadian Rockies. The, the Colorado Rockies are nice, and I know Pastor has a special place in his heart for those, but the Canadian Rockies are even just more towering and rugged, uh, the closest thing you get to the Alps, I guess, in, the, in North America. They're they just impenetrable. They're huge. It's just, I wanted to take my honeymoon but we got there, but we got married in March, and that is not the time to go to Canada, sorry, um, especially not that part <laughs> So we didn't go there. Um, we went south. But mountains, mountains are really things that, that just seem absolutely impossible to move. Did you ever face mountains in your life? Things just seem towering, impenetrable. There, there's no way that this is ever going to happen. Mountains. And he says they can, be, they can be moved. Now Jesus is, again, he's standing between two mountains, the Mount of Olives, twenty. 2,700 feet above sea level, the Temple Mount, 2,400 feet above sea level. And um, he's probably, as he's speaking, pointing to one of these mountains. And I would assume the Mount of Olives, but, but um, you know, doesn't necessarily tell us exactly. But say to this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast in the sea. And we say, okay. Um, the Dead Sea is 14 miles away. The Mediterranean Sea is 33 miles away. So it's not like, all right, an earthquake could happen and this thing you know, could slide down into the there's, there's no sea that's even close. But he's saying, if you say to that mountain, so not just is it impossible to move the mountain, but to throw it that far, that's pretty remarkable. We're talking about an impossibilities being broken down, being literally ripped out and cast away. And you know, if we're going to be part of fulfilling the Great Commission, if you're going to be part of serving the Lord of the cause of Christ, you are going to face mountains, impossibilities in your life. Some of you are probably facing some right now, facing impossibilities. You're looking at things and you think, I don't know how this is, this is going to happen. It could be, could be a school bill that you're, that's staring you in the face. Could be mountains of spiritual opposition in a discipleship opportunity, mountains of sickness perhaps in those that you love, mountains of substance abuse or broken relationships, false religion, financial hardships, mountains of, we look at our, <laughs> at our society and think revival, the revival that's needed in our nation is, is, is any recovery for our, our culture, for our our nation really even possible? And we think, that's just a mountain. It seems so impossible. How can this happen? 
could be the mountain of a building next door. For some of you, maybe the mountain is marriage, a relationship. That seems impossible that that would happen for some more than others. But Jesus is giving here a promise for moving mountains. And notice in verse 23, this is a promise for any disciple of Jesus. He says that whosoever shall say unto the mountain. It doesn't say, for if a pastor shall say to the mountain. It does not say, if a super spiritual person. It just says whosoever. Any disciple of Jesus can access this promise for mountains to be moved. And this is a promise, really, we can talk about, you know, use the imagery of moving mountains. It's really a promise about answers to prayer. That's what he goes on and explains. He says that he shall have whatsoever he saith. The next says that when, verse 24, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Miraculous answers to prayer. And you know, there's many things in our life that we never, never see happen because we just never pray. We, we don't even ask. We don't even bother to do that. We don't go to God and say, Lord, would you do this? Certainly there are things that that's the case. We just never ask, and so that's why we never see it happen. But what about those times when you are asking? When, when you do ask, and it seems like it's, it's not happening. Now, there could be a variety of factors going on, but, but certainly one of those can be that there are hindrances in our life to seeing those prayers answered, to seeing mountains moved. And I think that's what Jesus is addressing here in this text, is some hindrances to moving mountains, some things that stand in the way of us being able to truly see impossible things accomplished in our life. You see, Jesus says that by faith, we have the power to see any obstacle removed through prayer, no matter how great it is. But that, with that promise, he points out two hindrances that we see here, just two, um, but that'll probably take our whole time here. So to look at those two, that, that these things, if they're in your life, they're going to keep you from being able to move mountains. Let's go ahead and pray here. Lord, we need you right now. Would you make your, your word clear, make the truth come alive to us? Holy Spirit, fill me as your messenger. And Lord, fill each one of these students and faculty that are here, uh, Lord, with the ability to not just hear, but to truly lay hold on the truth that's here in this passage. So speak to us. Holy Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted. Convince us. Strengthen our faith where our faith needs to be strengthened. We ask in your name. Amen. The first hindrance that we see here to moving mountains is an unbelieving heart. An unbelieving heart. Faith is obviously at the core of what Jesus is addressing here. That's why he says, have faith in God, right? He starts off his lesson with that, with that simple statement, that proposition, we could say. You see, we all have an innate tendency in our life to doubt. It's natural for us to, to question, to, to doubt. It, that's what he says here. It says, you can say, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, verse 23, and shall not doubt in his heart. But that is our tendency. And the word doubt here, it means to be divided in your mind or to hesitate. So it's not talking about the person who is, you know, saying, that's never going to happen. There's no way. 
Are you kidding me? No, God doesn't work that way anymore. No, 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 this is, that's impossible, no way. That's not what it's talking about. This doubt here is someone who says, I'm just not sure. I don't know. Someone who questions. Maybe just a little bit cynical. I don't know if God quite does that. Maybe it'll happen. I sure hope it will, but we'll see. I'm going to hang out and we'll see what happens. That's doubt here in this passage. <laughs> a Sunday school teacher once asked this class of children, what is faith? And a little boy confidently piped up and said, I think it's believing God and asking no questions. And I think that's actually really insightful. See, we like to ask questions. It's part of our makeup. Some, some of you more than others, but we, we all like to think about things, you know, try to work this out logically. How is this going to happen? How is this going to work? And we look at whatever the situation is that seems impossible, and we think, how is this, is this, can this even, can I even make these dots connect if like crazy things happen? And God calls that doubt. When we, we ask questions and we try to figure this out, and he says, if you want to move mountains, you cannot have doubt in your heart. Which means that we're talking about something that goes against our human nature. Faith is not natural for us. Doubt is. But genuine faith here results in expectation, we see as well. Okay, it says, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. Notice verse number 24. What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. He doesn't say believe that you will receive them. The idea is believe that you are receiving them. So yes, you realize it's something future, but there's, there's an expectation that right now God is answering my prayer. And sometimes we have the idea, well, I need to, God's going to answer this prayer. No, God is answering our prayer. That's a heart of faith. Unbelief says, oh, I think this is, God's going to do this. Faith says God is already moving in answer to my prayer, that when I prayed, something happened. But the unbelieving heart, it's so much in us to think, well, yeah, I, let, I can convince God to get moving here. No. He says, listen, believe that what you say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do. You speak, I move. That's what God's talking about here. In 2009, we had a teen revival conference uh, here that Minutemen put on in the summertime, and uh, I was a part of that, and uh, certainly was a great time. And, and there was a group of us that during a lot of the sessions were praying together. And uh, I certainly, looking back, feel like I was more a spectator in those prayer meetings than a, I participated some, but a lot of it I was there just kind of a part of what was happening, but not necessarily the impetus behind what was happening as far as the prayer meeting went. Um, and, but I'm grateful for that, that, that time. And during that time, we, um, we were praying for God to do just a, a great work. We had a, a large group of people here. And in one of those prayer meetings, towards the end of the couple of days, um, the Lord really convinced us in that prayer meeting. I mean, he just spoke to us so clearly, I'm going to do something big. I'm going to move. I'm going to break through in this situation. And you have the answer. And it was one of those things where we, we said, oh, you know, Lord, you've done this. 
and we started thanking the Lord for doing it. And we went, we walked out of that room, uh, you know, to go towards this, the session had been going on and you know, getting, just getting towards the session closing. We walked out and, um, and we just, we all knew God's going to do something. God is, God is going to break through here. God's going to work. And so we went out and the session, you know, the invitation happened. There was some response to the session, but it, it wasn't like it was, uh, you know, anything dramatic. And, um, but none of us were all like, okay, God's, God's doing something, and we know he's given us the answer. He's given us the breakthrough. And so we then had, you know, had a break, and then it went into the next session. And uh, I sat down in the back of the auditorium of that session, and I literally remember within two or three minutes of that session starting, it was like the entire room was on pins and needles, and God was there. And uh, I've been in a few situations like that in my, uh, over the, the course of my revival journey, but this was without question the presence of God was in the room. And um, Dr. Jim was preaching, and um, it, God was all over everything that was happening. The invitation was given at the end, and literally almost the entire auditorium emptied out. And it wasn't just because the message was, you know, I mean, people were broken. And we had students come to Baptist College of Ministry as a result of what happened in that room that day um, of God breaking through in hearts and lives. And when that happened, we were certainly, I, I was thrilled. I was excited. This is awesome. I'm a part of counseling, you know, people over. And I mean, literally, we're, we had people waiting to be counseled because we didn't have enough counselors you know, to counsel in the situation. God was moving. And it was certainly exciting and thrilling, but it was not surprising. Because we knew God had given us that. And so when it happened, it was exactly what we expected to happen. We didn't know exactly how it was going to happen, but we expected what happened to happen. Because we knew, we prayed, God convinced us, and we had that expectation. And all I'm trying to get at, young people, is that we sometimes think of faith without expectation. And you cannot divorce the two. Real faith has to include expectation, or it's not really faith. You see, genuine faith results in expectation. So when you pray, do you expect something to happen? Do you believe that something is happening? Even if you can't see it at that moment, do you believe that God is actually already on the move? And we need to continue to pray, obviously. But praying, saying, I know God is moving. God is working in response to my prayers. But when we sit around and think, well, you know, I don't, is God hearing me? I don't know if God's going to answer this. I'm not sure if this is. Okay, well, that's doubt, so don't expect an answer. That's what he's saying here. The doubting heart will hinder us being able to see mountains moved. I guess if I could put it this way, you can say that you believe and not really believe. You can say the words of faith, they're spoken either way, but if there's doubt in the heart, well then the words of faith don't mean anything. And I was confronted with that reality when I traveled with Dr. Jim, with Dr. Jim uh, on the War of Special Forces when it came to recruiting. I'm just, some of you all have, have been in those situations. And I had been traveling for quite a few weeks, and again, I, I saw the Lord do some things, but I certainly wasn't... Um, I was not a super effective recruiter, I'll just say that. Um, and actually, there was a week that Dr. Jim was gone for something, and so 
um, John Barber filled in, and he really challenged me on this matter of, of faith. And we'd have prayer meetings, say, God, I'd be praying, God, lead us to teens. Lord, you're going you're to bring teens across our path and praying. And God, I know you're going to do it. You're going to bring teens to us. And, um, and I'd say all those words of faith, and then I'd get out on the turf, and uh, there'd be a teenager, ah, that doesn't seem like a good situation. I'm not going to go to that one. Uh, well, yeah, that seems like that would be a little bit awkward, so maybe I'm not going to do that. And I said words of faith but I wasn't actually walking by faith. I said I believed God was going to bring teenagers and situations, recruits across my path, and then I didn't take the recruiting opportunities that he did because I didn't really believe they were from him. So you can speak words of faith without actually believing. It's said that Alexander the Great wanted to reward a philosopher who had rendered great service to him. And so he literally said, ask whatever you want of me. And the philosopher decided to take the offer seriously. And so he went to the royal treasurer and he said, uh, I'd like 10,000 pounds of gold. Well, the treasurer was shocked, furious that, um, you know, this philosopher would make such an incredible, tremendous request of the emperor. And he went, he went to Alexander the Great and said, this man has asked too much. His request is unreasonable. And Alexander the Great listened and then told the treasurer, Give him exactly what he asked for. And this is what he said. He has honored me in three ways. First, he believed my word. Second, he believed my wealth. Third, he believed my willingness to do what I said I would do. Give him the money. He has honored me by his great faith in my words. What would God say if we actually took his offer in these verses seriously, if we actually believed not just that he could do it, but that he would do it, if we stopped just saying it with our lips and actually in our hearts believe that when you pray, whatsoever things you desire, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. What would God think if we actually believe that he would keep his end of the bargain. See, when it really gets down to it, at the core of this matter of an unbelieving heart, is that deep down inside, we don't think that God can be trusted. Which is why Hebrews 3.12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. See, we think, well, I know I'm maybe not, you know, not filled with faith, but unbelief is saying, God, I can't trust you to keep your word. You won't keep your side of the bargain. I'm not sure that you will. And so I can't bank on you on that. We would never say that, but that is what it is. That is what it is. And I'm afraid that many of us know how to say the right things, even after we've maybe prayed, but in our hearts we don't actually believe it. And our actions show it. You say, well, what does this unbelieving heart look like? I think a lot of times an unbelieving heart looks, we say the words of faith, we maybe pray about it, and then we put our hands in the situation when God hasn't told us to. Pay the bill with the credit card, assume we're going to have to sit out 
a semester. You know, you could go get a mortgage to buy the building next door. Try to put our hands in the situation, try to make something happen. Instead of believing God. This happens a lot in the, in the, the area of relationships. The unbelief in our hearts, I think, is especially deep when it comes to the matter of believing God about your spouse. We want to put our hands in the situation, try to manipulate it. I wrestled with that in college, I understand. You know, I've got to have my brother become his friend just to, you know, kind of just have that family relationship, you know, try to get to have some connection. Got to have some sort of communication so she she at least knows I'm, you know, interested a little bit. You know, there's some sort of, that I don't think she's weird, you know. What if someone else asks before I do? I can get all bent out of shape about that. Where's faith in that? That's unbelief. Can you trust God with that matter? Or do you need to get your hands in on the situation? I, I had times in my journey of that that I, I had my hands in on the situation. There's things that I did that I look back that I think, I wish I hadn't done that because that wasn't faith. And I'm thankful somebody confronted me about that. I said, listen, you're not believing God. I said, oh, you're right. I'm not believing God. So God, I'm going to take my hands off the situation. I'm going to put it in your hands. And guess what? That's when I started to see God do things. If you keep your hands in the situation, don't expect miracles. Don't expect the divine L, you know, dynamic of what, and, what's, and what's happening. You don't need it. Your hands are in there. But when you say, God, my hands are off of this, I'm trusting you, and I'm not going to put my hands in there. I'm not going to do anything until, until you tell me to. Well, then it's in God's hands, and God can do miracles, amazing things that make you look back and say, oh, this is, wow, this is awesome. And it applies to more than that situation, but I'm just, that's very practical. I think the unbelief is really deep in our hearts in that matter, this unbelieving heart. We're, we're not willing to believe God for that because it's so personal and such a big decision in life. Could be future ministry and things like, well, how am I even going to get to this? Oh, I've got to do this. I've got to make this connection and I've got to make this happen and I've got to, you know, get friends with this person over here so I can get into this pastoral position or into this teaching position or into this. Listen, where's faith in that? Faith is trusting God. It's putting your dependence on Him, letting Him lead. Yes, it's obedience every time He tells you to take a step, take a step. But don't take a step when He hasn't told you to take a step because you've got to figure this out. Trust Him. If you want to see mountains moved, if you want to see those miraculous, impossible things happen in your life, then it cannot be your work because you can't do that. You can't do impossible things. Only he can. So stop, stop trying to make it happen. And let him make it happen. You say, well, Ms. Mueller, I see the unbelieving hearts. Yeah, I, I've, got, I, I've got 
this questioning in my heart. I'm trying to get my hands on the situation. I'm maybe say words of faith, but not actually believing you. I'm not actually, there's no expectation. How do I deal with this unbelieving heart? It's right here in the text. It's Jesus' proposition. You see, the way to deal with an unbelieving heart is to get your eyes back on God. How does he start? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. See, when your eyes are on the mountain, you won't see the mountain move. You're going to be filled with unbelief. When your eyes are on the impossibility, you're going to be filled with unbelief because it's impossible. But if your eyes are on God, the mountain looks small. Because the mountain's nothing compared to him. He made the mountain. He can move mountains. He's done it. It's just a simple statement. It's it's almost so simple. We pass over, have faith in God. We put it on a poster. But do you live that? Are your eyes on him? See, if you're struggling with unbelief, you can't work up faith. You can't. I've just got to have more faith. You can't. When you're struggling with unbelief, spend time with God. Get your eyes on him. Get alone with him. Immerse yourself in his word. Meditate on his promises. Lay hold on his promises. Focus on who he is, what he's going to do, and get your eyes off of the mountain and put it on the mountain mover. That's how you deal with the unbelieving heart. Have you been focused on the obstacles? The mountains, the impossible situations. Let's get our eyes off of that and get them back on him. These last few weeks of the school year and as we go into a summer where you're going to face mountains, no matter what your situation is, internship, working at home, here, wherever you are, What would your summer look like if you, if you kept your eyes on the mountain mover? Maybe you would see some miracles, some supernatural things happening in your life. Graduate, as you step out of here, go into the next phase of life, maybe you'd have a ministry marked by miracles if you stopped looking at the mountains and got your eyes back on the mountain mover. See, the first obstacle that we see here is an unbelieving heart. And it's a big one. It's a big one. But the second obstacle that we see here is an unforgiving spirit. Notice verse 25, and this comes right after verse 24, just to be clear, okay? This is the context. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Jesus is very clearly laying out another hindrance to moving mountains here, an unforgiving spirit. And can I say this? I've been burdened about this, young people. I believe that this is perhaps the number one cause of compromise in our movement, particularly our revival movement, if I can use that term. 
an unforgiving spirit. Get a burr under your saddle about something and then it grows and grows and turns into theological reasons why that's why why you should it's okay to be against this person or that person and and you end up places you never thought you would be. I'm talking about people that I love. And it starts with an unforgiving spirit. There's no mountains being moved there. See, faith puts us into right relations with God. But our relations with our fellows must also be right. If we're to pray and speak effectually, Paul says. So what is forgiveness? Notice what it says here. It says, if ye have aught against any. Against any. You see, an unforgiving spirit is holding something against someone. You see, there's going to be things that are going to happen in your life that are going to violate your justice system. It's going to say, listen, that's wrong. That shouldn't have happened. They didn't treat me right. They didn't, you know, they maybe... Um, you know, did something that was, that was unkind. They said something that wasn't true. Listen, that, that just wasn't right. That, that was not right. Okay, well, it's going to happen. We live in a world filled with people. It's going to happen. Expect it to happen. And you know what? It may even happen from people who love you and people that you love. They may hurt you because they're people and they're not perfect either. You know, well, listen, they did this to me, and I don't plan to forget it anytime soon. Or perhaps they broke my trust, and I could never trust them again. This is what they always do. It's just how they are. Or how about this one? Listen, I'll let go of it when they come and they say sorry. It's an unforgiving spirit. Sound familiar? Do you ever think those thoughts about people? See, we live in a world today where, unfortunately, forgiveness is being redefined by some believers. To be something of only like a mental assent that allows them to still continue to hold a grudge against people. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But there, there is a movement that way where, well, yeah, I've forgiven that person. But if you bring up that name, there's anger. Nothing positive to be said. Listen, if, if there's people that when you think of them, all you can think of is negative things, you'd better examine your heart for an unforgiving spirit. That's not forgiveness. To say, to say the words, I forgive, but to have in your heart a, they, they, they still they did something wrong. You still have something against them which is what he's talking about here. Listen, friends, you cannot choose the hurt that you will receive, but you can choose how you respond to the hurt. And it will either make you or it will break you. It will make you or break you. See, if an unforgiving spirit is holding on to an offense then forgiveness is letting go of the offense. 
Forgiveness is saying, listen, I'm not going to hold on to that anymore. It really, to forgive is a financial term. It's the idea of a debt being forgiven. That's where that term comes from. So it's like this. If someone here owed me, you know, $5,000. Okay, so if Isaac, I, I always pick on Isaac. So if Isaac owes me $5,000, he wanted to buy a new MacBook Pro with, you know, extra whatever, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, you know, for his work for me in the graphics team. But he didn't have the money, so he said, hey, Mr. Mueller, I know you have a lot of money, so if you give me $5,000, which isn't really true, except for right now because of Joe Biden. So, um, <laughs> And I have a lot of kids, so that all adds up. Um, <laughs> and so, but $5,000, I said, okay, Isaac, yeah, you're, you know, I'm, and he says, I'll pay you back, you know, whatever. So I, uh, Isaac, you know, buys his computer with, my $5,000 and, um, you know, his sophomore year finishes up and then he has his junior year and, of course, he still has a school bill. He's focused on that. And his senior year and then he goes to seminary and so he has two years of seminary. He's trying to pay for all of that. And then he's going to get married and go into ministry, hopefully, you know, all those things. And uh, so 10 years pass and um, I'm still out $5,000. I have a choice, right? I can send the creditors to his door. Isaac, $5,000 plus interest, it's now $25,000. <laughs> or I could say, Isaac, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's a gift. I've forgiven it. Don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me the back. And Isaac hears that and says, oh, man. All right. And he goes and starts working third job, fourth job, and uh, to try to make him, and he comes, gives it this money and says, Isaac, what is this for? Well, it's the $5,000 over here. So you don't owe me $5,000. Oh, no, no, no. But, but, but. I said, no, no, you don't. I, I forgave that. You don't owe me anything. That's forgiveness. It's going to the courtroom of heaven and saying, God, this person who wronged me doesn't owe me anything. It's in your interactions with that person, not saying, yeah, I'm just waiting, still, that's still hanging out there, I'm just still waiting for that, uh, that just, just, I'm sorry, just a little apology at least. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is, they don't owe me anything. It's, it's forgiven. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, erased from the past. It, it, it's, it's there, but the, and not holding that against them. And I realize sometimes trust has to be rebuilt in some of those things, but if there's a holding against, then it's not really forgiveness. You don't owe me anything. Not an apology, not changing your behavior, not trying to do better, not paying me back. You owe me nothing. That's forgiveness. And if there is something in your life where you are holding on to something against someone, don't expect mountains to move. Because an unforgiving spirit hinders our prayers. We're not just talking about big things here. It says ought. That means anything. If you have ought, anything against anyone, that means big, that means small. Anything. Small things, you know, they, 
when they're left unresolved, they turn into big things, by the way. A little thing where you think, oh, it's just a little irritation with this, the call that was made by the administration on this or with you know, my roommate that made this sarcastic tone or whatever, who doesn't pick up his socks or whatever it is. You, know. you leave those unresolved, it turns into something big. This is anything. And it could be a big thing. I mean, it could be talking about, you know, the snide remarks that your family makes, maybe about a stand that you decide to take, or your dad breaking his promise again and again and again, parents breaking up. I don't know the situations of everyone here, but it says anything. And I'm not saying that to be unkind if there's something that's been very hurtful in your life. I'm just saying that's what he says. Anything. A woman watched in horror as her neighbor, whom they had considered a friend, hacked her husband to death in a time of turmoil over in the country of Rwanda. And with blood on his hand, that murderer, with some two million other people, fled to Zaire. But two years later, when civil war broke out there in uh, Zaire, they had to go back to Rwanda. And so there they are in the capital city. And uh, starved and in rags, this man, the, this murderer, was trying to just survive there anonymously, not without being recognized. And one day he's in the marketplace and he comes face to face with her, the wife of the man that he had slaughtered right before her. It's hard to say who was more shocked. He froze there in terror because he knew all she had to do was yell out, he's the man, and he'd be arrested uh, on the spot, if not lynched right there in the marketplace. But instead of crying out for his condemnation, she invited him to his home. And fearful, wondering what was she going to do, but not really seeing any other alternative, um, he went with her. And she brought him into her home and had him sit down. He kind of was looking for his exit strategy, ready to run. And she brought him some food, some water. He was a little bit Still, you know, on edge, but he began to eat. But then she brought him some clothes that had belonged to her husband, whom he had killed. He stared there in disbelief as she told him, I want you to know that I forgive you for your sin against me. I can do this only because I love Jesus who has forgiven me. Through his grace, I can follow his example. You may go in peace. Can I say it this way? Go, you don't owe me anything. Forgiveness. You see, an unforgiving spirit will keep you from moving mountains. Not holding anything against others, but I feel like I maybe should say this as well, and not holding anything against yourself. Sometimes the person we have the hardest time forgiving is us. I feel like I blew it so bad, man, I just, I keep on blowing it, man. I really messed up this situation. Man, this part of my life is never going to be the same because I did this, whatever. This includes forgiving yourself. Listen, it's under the blood of Jesus. He's forgiven me, and I need to let it go. Not live bound by the guilt and shame of something that Jesus has paid for. 
Now listen, why is this, this dealing with this unforgiving spirit so crucial? Why is this matter of, of letting go of the offense, whatever it may be? So notice verse 25, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. You see, if you will not forgive others, then you're not in a right relationship with God. And therefore, you're not in a right position to ask. Maybe if I put it this way, if you hold on to your sin of an unforgiving, bitter spirit, God can't forgive you for that sin. Because you're still holding on to it. You're still, you're still holding it close. Yeah, this, this unforgiveness, I, I, I want to hold on to this. You're not willing to agree with God about it and call it sin and let it go. And so God can't forgive you for that because you're still, it's when we confess our sins that he is faithful and just to forgive, that he's able to forgive those sins. This isn't talking about eternal reality of heaven or hell. This verse is talking about relationship with God. And God says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So if you hold on to the sin of unforgiving spirit, then God can't hear your prayer. That's why your mountains don't move. Here's a quote from one commentator. God has never promised to answer the prayer of an unforgiving heart. An attitude of unforgiveness effectively blocks the channel of prayer so that no answer is possible. God forgives us as we forgive our brothers in Christ. This is not the forgiveness offered to a sinner, but to a failing saint. Unless we forgive others, our Father in heaven will not forgive us when we come to him acknowledging our sins from day to day. Young people, as we, as we close here, can I, can I ask you to do this? Learn this above all else. You cannot afford to hold on to an unforgiving spirit. It seems like in the moment when the hurt happens that it's worth it. It's not worth it in the long run. Several years ago when Brother Ingram was here, he preached a message from the book of Ruth um, about Naomi, and he made the statement, Sometimes you have the right to get bitter. And he said, I've had that. I've had the right to be bitter about something. I was wrong, legitimately. I had that right. But I can't afford to get bitter. The cost is too great to hold on to an unforgiving spirit. And young people, I plead with you, don't hold on to offenses. It is not worth it. It will ruin your life. You'll become the person that you're upset with. But you also will never see those impossibilities move. Are you facing a mountain? Wherever you go to serve Jesus, you're going to face obstacles. And the only way they can be removed is if you can pray unhindered. Mountains move when you pray unhindered. By an unbelieving heart and an unforgiving spirit. Let's bow for prayer.